President Biden in Philadelphia today touts his administration's role in shoring up America's infrastructure and supporting organized labor. Coming up, does Mr. Biden deserve to call himself the most pro-union president in American history? It's Labor Day, Monday, September 4th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, workers on the Strip in Las Vegas talk about the risks that artificial intelligence poses to the jobs in the Vegas tourism industry. We had a huge fight about technology in previous contract. We're going to have the same fight this time around. The pandemic brought about working from home, one of the biggest changes to the workforce since the Industrial Revolution. But now more companies are asking their employees to return to the office. And Google is a quarter century old. We'll hear how the company's past and present challenges bode for its future. It's 401. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Congress is preparing to return tomorrow from summer recess and take up government spending to avert a potential shutdown at the end of this month. And President Biden is asking them to take up emergency funding for natural disasters. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports it comes as the Biden administration prepares to release an executive order on managing artificial intelligence. Experts say Biden's executive order will likely mirror the administration's AI Bill of Rights, which was released in 2022. The EO will outline a vision of how the White House thinks artificial intelligence can be managed in a way that promotes its benefits, but also takes control of its risks. The executive order cannot legislate, though. The White House says it's working closely with Congress on regulation. In addition to the order, the White House will also release guidance from the Office of Management and Budget that will outline rules for government agencies on how they can and cannot use AI for practices that impact housing opportunities and other economic decisions. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. In closely watched talks in Russia, President Vladimir Putin has rejected efforts by his Turkish counterpart to revive a deal to allow the safe passage of grain from Ukraine. Putin recycled complaints that the U.N. agreement helped Ukraine export its grain but had cheated Russia. Meantime, NPR's Brian Mann reports Russia is pounding the Ukrainian city on the Danube River. Russian drones struck Ismail for more than three hours early Monday, causing what regional governor Oleg Kieper described as widespread infrastructure damage. Ukrainian air defenses knocked out 17 drones, but others reportedly hit their targets, setting several buildings on fire. Russia has largely choked off shipments from Ukraine's big port on the Black Sea in Odessa. Ukraine has tried to shift cargo traffic to ports on the Danube River. Moscow has used repeated missile and drone strikes to cripple that effort. In this latest attack, warehouses and other buildings were damaged, but there were no reports of casualties. Brian Mann, NPR News, Kyiv. Labor Day may herald the unofficial end of summer, but the heat is on in the upper Midwest. Temperatures are well above average, and it's nearing the triple digits in parts of the Northeast. Mark Chouinard is with the National Weather Service. The heat's going to remain in the east, especially from the mid-Atlantic into portions of the Northeast. It continues through at least Thursday. And then, unfortunately, in like the southern plains, like Texas, um, it also looks to continue for much of the week. The National Weather Service says hot and dry winds are leading to critical fire conditions in parts. In Nevada's desert, an exodus is underway at the Burning Man Festival, where tens of thousands of attendees had sheltered in place after a rare heavy rain led to flooding and deep mud at the event north of Reno. While the gates have reopened and the rain has stopped, it's still wet and muddy, and organizers are asking people to consider waiting until tomorrow to head out. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Hundreds of unionized workers in industries ranging from construction to education marched from the Boston Park Plaza Hotel to downtown Crossing today. The rally was in support of the writers' strike in solidarity with a SAG-AFTRA union that represents writers and actors. Here's WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez with more. For weeks, SAG-AFTRA members have been on strike while negotiating a new agreement to increase wages. It would also address concerns over the use of artificial intelligence in the entertainment industry. The Greater Boston Labor Council helped organize the rally. Darlene Lombos is with the Labor Council and says it's important for unions to support each other. Solidarity is what the labor movement is all about. We are about sharing that power that we're building with workers with each other. So for us, an injury to one is an injury to all. Lombo says the Labor Council will support the SAG-AFTRA strike until an agreement has been reached. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Authorities in New York have seized an ancient Roman bust from the Worcester Art Museum that had likely been stolen and illegally imported in 1966. WBUR's Simone Rios has more. The bust is believed to depict the daughter of an emperor who ruled more than 2,000 years ago. The Worcester Art Museum said in a statement that it returned the bronze bust to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Museum officials say they were presented with evidence earlier this year, which indicated that the bust was likely stolen and improperly brought into the country. Museum director Matthias Waszczek said in a statement that the museum is committed to managing its collection in a way consistent with modern ethical standards. The bus likely came from a shrine to a Roman emperor in what is now Turkey and is expected to be returned to its country of origin. The Manhattan DA's office has returned tens of millions of dollars in stolen artifacts to Turkey in recent years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. A nonprofit group is transforming vacant spaces and empty lots in Boston into temporary art spaces. Kate Gilbert is executive director of Now and There. It uses local and international artists to develop free public art throughout the city. We started this organization um, because we felt there was a need for more visual contemporary art in the public realm. And part of the reason that we're doing temporary projects is so that we can put like as many out as possible. Gilbert says some of the work includes Puerto Rican-born artist Adra Soto and her first-ever Boston artwork at Central Wharf Park near the aquarium. 83 degrees now, pretty beauteous Labor Day today. Clouds should move in for the night, not too chilly overnight, about 66 for a low. Tomorrow, just about as warm as today, has been 87 degrees tops with clouds and sunshine both. Again, 83 in Boston at 4.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by 20th Century Studios, presenting A Haunting in Venice. From the world of Agatha Christie comes a supernatural thriller. Rated PG-13, only in theaters September 15th. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. A deal fell apart today that could have helped feed hungry people around the world. Russian President Vladimir Putin met with Turkey's leader, who wanted to revive a UN-backed agreement to move grain safely from Ukraine through the Black Sea. Putin left the deal in July, and today he rejected the effort to restart it. NPR's Charles Maines has been watching the talks from his base in Moscow. Hey there. Hi there. Begin by just setting the scene for us. Where did this meeting take place? What was the setting? 
Yeah, sure. These talks took place in the Russian resort city of Sochi, uh, which lies in the Black Sea, uh, as do the main players in this story, Russia, Turkey, and Ukraine. Uh, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan came hoping to coax President Putin back into the UN deal uh, that was first brokered by Turkey and the UN uh, and to provide safe passage uh, for Ukrainian grain despite the war in Ukraine. Now, going in, Erdogan and his team expressed cautious optimism, and yet it quickly became clear that whatever positive aspects of this relationship between the two leaders and Putin and Erdogan appear to have to get along quite well despite Turkey being a member of NATO, uh, it, it just wasn't enough to convince Putin to rejoin the deal. Did Putin explain why, what his argument was? Well, at a press conference following the talks, Putin recycled a litany of complaints that the agreement helped Ukraine export its grain, uh, but repeatedly failed to ease Russian agricultural trade. Let's listen. So here Putin says, as often happens with our Western partners, they cheated us. And then he goes on to say Russia is open to restarting the grain agreement, but only once uh, promises to lift Western-imposed restrictions on banking and logistics and things like that have finally been lifted. Now, Putin clearly sees these as Western sanctions on Russian agriculture simply by another name. Uh, now, Putin also repeated another Russian talking point. He argues the Black Sea deal mostly aids wealthier countries and touted Russia's own efforts to direct its bumper crop to the world's poorest. Uh, that's a pitch by Putin for Russia to provide discounted grain and fertilizer to the global south and direct humanitarian aid shipments uh, to six African nations, most of whom are Russian allies. How do Turkey and the UN respond to those charges from Russia? Well, Erdogan seems very eager not to end discussions altogether. You know, he expressed optimism that Russia would eventually rejoin the deal, uh, which has Turkish prestige on the line after all. Uh, he also offered some vocal support to helping Russia deliver those grain shipments to its allies in Africa. Uh, but if there's any friction that we could see, uh, it seemed to hinge on the point that kind of we raised, that Erdogan said the UN deal had benefited poor countries. Uh, the UN makes the same case with numbers. Uh, 33 million metric tons of Ukrainian grain exported through the deal have helped keep prices down, they say, and feed the world's hungry. And the UN said it's directed these concrete proposals to assuage Moscow's concerns, but, but apparently that's uh, fallen short in the Kremlin's eyes. And what about Ukraine? What are the Ukrainians saying about this? Well, you know, amid the collapse of the grain deal, Moscow is taken to bombing Ukraine's grain facilities, its infrastructure, in what appears an effort to gut the Ukrainian agricultural economy entirely. Uh, Russia has also threatened to fire on commercial ships attempting to circumvent a Russian blockade, calling them legitimate military targets. In fact, Russia launched military strikes on grain stores near ports in the Odessa region on Sunday, just a day before Erdogan's arrival to Sochi. So it's a sign, if you, if you needed one, uh, that efforts to resuscitate this grain deal were in trouble uh, before these talks ever began. That's NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Thank you. Thank you. On this Labor Day, we're going to examine a promise from the president. I meant what I said when I said I'm going to be the pro, most pro-union president in American history, and I make no apologies for it. So how has the Biden administration been for workers? NPR's Andrea Hsu takes a look. Let's start with workers themselves, people like Laura Leguizamo, who works in housekeeping at the JW Marriott in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, everything is expensive. Um, I have to move from my home because they sell the property and uh, I can't find any place, you know, cheaper. Her union has been staging strikes and rallies and demanding an immediate 20% raise in their next contract and more in years to come. Lady Zamo says she simply can't afford to live on her salary, which is... Uh, 25 
an hour? $25 an hour, well above LA's minimum wage of $16.90 an hour, but still not enough. All the payments and bills and rent and that food is very expensive. Now workers in LA have it particularly bad given soaring housing prices, but all over the country workers are finding that even though their wages have gone up a lot since Biden came into office. Pay for low wage workers has grown at the fastest pace in over two decades. Inflation has been tough, really tough. Wage gains only started outpacing inflation in July. Now, Acting Labor Secretary Julie Su notes how steeply inflation has fallen. It's like a third of what it was uh, just a year ago. And she points out this has happened without a spike in unemployment or a decline in wages. So things should be looking up, even if people aren't feeling it yet. But what about new jobs? Well, job creation has been strong under Biden. And Sue says, look at all the new opportunities in clean energy and manufacturing that are projected to come online thanks to federal investments in infrastructure and semiconductors, the CHIPS Act. Two trillion dollars are going to start hitting communities all across the country and creating more good jobs, good union jobs. Sounds good, but there are doubters. People like Scott Lincecum, a free market economist with the Cato Institute, who's warned the spending could prove waste he spoke to NPR last fall. Time and time again with U.S. industrial policy projects, the government has good intentions, but ends up actually backing the wrong horse. Others are more optimistic about the administration's choices and what they'll do for workers. Lorena Roque, a policy analyst with the Center for Law and Social Policy, gives the administration credit for trying to reach workers who have been shut out of opportunities in the past, including, for example, requiring companies who want CHIPS money to provide access to affordable childcare. I think the key with a lot of the Biden administration's job creation is also making sure that there are equitable pathways and equitable access for women and people of color. Of course, there's still a long way to go to make that a reality. Biden's $200 billion proposal to make childcare affordable, even free for Americans, didn't go anywhere. And now COVID emergency money for daycares is running out. Now, one thing the Biden administration has done is raise the visibility of workers. The president appears alongside union members all the time. Electricians, carpenters, iron workers, steel workers, laborers, bricklayers, plumbers, pipe fitters, police officers, firefighters. And America's support for unions is close to a 60-year high. But whether the administration can parlay that support into real growth in union membership is still a big question. One big disappointment for unions, the administration has not been able to get a bill passed that would make it easier for workers to organize and harder for companies to push back. Without that, many parts of Biden's agenda for workers remain on hold. Andrea Hsu, NPR News. Time now for my Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain, hearing about people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today we hear from Trieste Belmont. In 2014, she was struggling with depression. Her grandmother had just died, and she and her longtime boyfriend had just broken up. Life felt unbearable. Around that time, Belmont was teaching a dance class. She didn't have a driver's license, so friends and family would give her rides. One day her ride didn't show up. And a note for listeners that the next part of the story is about suicide. I waited for about an hour and they never came. So I decided to just walk home. It wasn't super far, but longer than I wanted to walk. 
I was just having one of the worst days of my life. On the way home, I crossed over the 49 bridge, and it's a pretty high bridge. And I was looking down at all the cars, just feeling so useless and like such a burden to everyone in my life that I decided that this was the time and I needed to end my life. I was sobbing and crying and working up the courage to just go through with it because I knew at that moment that it was going to make everyone's lives better. And a car came driving up from behind and they shouted, don't jump, right as I was in one of my darkest moments. And those words just changed everything for me. Having a stranger care about me in my darkest time made it so that I didn't jump and it saved my life. Something that I realized is that even if something's not a huge moment in your life, just the little small gestures that you can make for other people really do make a difference. Even if you see someone that has a cute outfit on, telling them might make their day. They might be super depressed and worried about the way they look, but if you come in and you give them a small little compliment, it could change everything for them. Trieste Belmont of Nevada City, California. In the past few years, Belmont says her mental health has greatly improved with the help of a therapist and her family's support. She hopes that sharing her story will inspire others struggling with depression to reach out for help. And if you or someone you love struggles with suicidal thoughts, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That number is 988. You can find more stories like this one on the My Unsung Hero podcast. To share the story of your unsung hero, visit myunsunghero.org for instructions on how to send a voice memo. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up in about 20 minutes, a documentary traces Little Richard's life and career from his early days on America's Chitlin circuit of R&B clubs to his stardom as an early pioneer of rock. That's still ahead on WBUR. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Business bankruptcies in Massachusetts are on the rise. In all of last year, the Boston Business Journal reports there were 198 business bankruptcy filings in the state. In just the first half of 2023, there are 139. That puts Massachusetts on pace for 278 bankruptcy filings this year, 40% more than last year. This is WBUR. The forecast is coming up. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. It's the Red Sox and the Rays in a holiday matinee down in St. Petersburg today. Brian Bayo is on the mound for Boston, Aaron Savali for Tampa Bay. In the first inning, there is still no score. This is game one of a three-game set. Gorgeous day today. Overnight tonight, some clouds around, not too chilly, about 66 at the lowest. Tomorrow should be about 87 degrees, tops, clouds, and sunshine both. And then we should have another summery day toward midweek, may reach the 90s on Thursday. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI. Dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. Today is a big anniversary for one of the most influential companies of our time. We should say that Google is, we want to provide information to people. That's what we do. And so um, we try to err on that side whenever we can. I think this will be a very interesting issue for the world going forward. That was Google co-founder Larry Page speaking with WHYY's Fresh Air in 2003. At that point, the company was already a behemoth at just five years old. Now, as the company turns 25, let's look at where Google has been and where it's going with Nilay Patel. He's editor-in-chief of The Verge and has been reflecting on Google's legacy and its future. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Before Google had a parent company, Alphabet, before it owned YouTube, before Google it was a household phrase, what was this company's reason for existing? You know, Larry Page and Sergey Brin came up with a better algorithm for delivering search results on the internet called PageRank, named after Larry Page. And really, they turned that into a business in a very classic Silicon Valley way. They didn't know what business they were in. They just knew that their product was better than competing products. And at the very beginning of Google, they were both fairly opposed to advertising. And they knew that advertising would be a way to make money, but they thought it would corrupt the company inevitably. And here we are 25 years later, and Google is a dominant purveyor of advertising online. And it is, I think it's, it's important for us to all take a minute and look at it and say, okay, our information architecture is dominated by people searching for things. And those search results are very much influenced by the needs of Google. Not only that, you write that Google set out to organize the world's information, but ultimately what ended up happening was that information organized itself for Google. Can you give us an example of what you mean by that? Yeah, and I think this is largely true of all algorithmic media distribution platforms, and we just don't think about Google that way. If I told you that Instagram influencers tried to make things to please the Instagram recommendation algorithm, no one would bat an eye. Everyone knows this is true. YouTubers try to make videos that please the YouTube algorithm. There's a reason that every YouTube thumbnail looks crazy and has a shocking headline about what you won't believe. It's because that works in that algorithm, the way it's organized, the amount of words on a recipe website. All of that is there because people believe that the Google search algorithm will favor that stuff. 
And so you just look at this world that we're in online and you say, boy, there's a, there's a true invisible hand here that dominates how people organize information. If you ask Google, they will deny this up and down. They will say that Google just reflects what people are searching for. And the truth is obviously somewhere in the middle, right? People are trying to rank higher in search. They make things that the, the robot wants and the robot is just surfacing the results so people click on the most. And there's some cycle in there. But what is truly bizarre to me is no one will point directly at Google being the center of that cycle. So you argue that Google has not just reflected the internet back to us, but really shaped the internet as it exists today. And it may look very different tomorrow. When we look at the future of the company, you argue that AI-related challenges pose an existential threat to Google. Existential threat is a strong phrase. Why? So the quote you played at the very beginning is the conflict that has been within Google from the very beginning. They are there to provide useful information. That's what Google has always thought of itself as. And initially, the way they provided it was by looking at the entire internet and sending you to pages on the internet that contained that information. Over time, Google has bought a lot of companies that now own and control that information, and they favor their own companies over competitors who might have better information or more useful services. They also just answer the questions directly now. There was a cottage industry of websites telling people what time the Super Bowl was. That was pretty ridiculous, but they were all competing for Google search traffic for that query on the day of the Super Bowl. Now Google just tells you the answer to that question. That's probably fine. But you add in something like AI or Google's search generative experience, which needs to ingest a massive amount of data to then just provide the answers contained on the pages that it ingested. And no one gets any traffic from that. Nobody gets any value from that. And you can see why a bunch of companies that have organized themselves around Google traffic are freaking out because they have just provided all of their work to Google for free, and they're not really going to get anything else out of it. If an AI-defined future is worse for Google, is it better for users who are just trying to find the best information without getting gamed and manipulated for clicks? I think that is one of the questions of the AI age. If no one wants to share their new information with Google, what will it train the AI on? If some set of big publishers say, look, our Google traffic is going down, we're going to stop letting Google crawl our web pages and stop feeding new information into the Google search machine, where is the AI going to get new reliable information from? It can't scrape Instagram. They can't scrape TikTok. Those companies are closed off to Google. I've asked Google CEO Sundar Pichai about this, and his answer was that they have YouTube, that YouTube exists, and people will still make YouTube videos. And I, and I think that answer is fundamentally extremely revealing. Google knows that a new creator online is not going to start a web page the way that I started a web page when I was a young person who wanted to make things on the internet. They're going to start a TikTok channel or a YouTube channel. So if the web slowly dies because Google and AI are sucking the value out of it without creating any incentives to create new things, I don't know where that leaves any of us, really. Okay, so big picture on this anniversary, 25 years in, if you could describe Google's legacy in a sentence, what would that be? Secretly ruthless. Oh, that's, that's rough. Wow. Secretly ruthless. That's even less than a sentence. Give me a little bit more. Why do you say secretly ruthless? Google has convinced everyone that it is this incredibly sincere and earnest company that is just a bunch of goofballs making cool things. That is true. 
But I think we just paid a little more attention to where Google's money comes from, and it is almost entirely advertising. I think we would be able to see the company and its influence a little bit more clearly. But the truth is, it is an utterly ruthless advertising company that is very, very, very successful at delivering results to its clients. But Neil, you didn't mention how cute the Google Doodles are. Yeah, like I said, they're very cute. <laughs> like a lot, of, I, I, I know a lot of Google people. I know a lot of Google executives. They're on my show decoder all the time. I like talking to them. They wrestle very sincerely with very challenging trade-offs. But I do think on the occasion of its anniversary, it is remarkable that we are all more cynical or more rigorous in our analysis of Facebook. To some extent, we're more cynical in our analysis of Apple. To a huge extent, we are cynical in our analysis of TikTok. But no one applies that level of rigor to Google, which is actually the product that shapes the most information on the web. Nilay Patel is host of the Decoder podcast and editor-in-chief at The Verge, where all this year he'll be reflecting on the past and future of Google to mark the company's 25th anniversary. Thanks for marking it with us. Thank you for having me. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR on this holiday afternoon. Coming up, what artificial intelligence means for workers on the Vegas Strip. Should have some clouds around tonight, not too chilly, about 66 for a low. Then for tomorrow, should be sunny, some clouds, temperatures about 87 degrees tops. And then Wednesday, sunny and dry, still summery, temperatures in the mid-80s. This is 90.9 WBUR. It is 83 degrees now in the Boston area at 430. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE, SIPC. Very few Americans say they're better off financially this year than they were last year. That's according to a large new survey. And they're feeling that way despite indicators that say the economy is on the up. About a year ago, inflation was like 9%. It was over 9%. And now it's 3 That's a great achievement. So what's behind the pessimism Americans have about their own financial lives? That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Vice President Kamala Harris will travel to Indonesia this week. She's scheduled to take part in two summits with a group of Asian countries and hold talks with leaders from the Indo-Pacific. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports the vice president's visit comes amid strained relations between the United States and China. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre says Harris will likely discuss recent territorial disputes in the South China Sea during her visit to Jakarta. Throughout her meetings in Jakarta, a couple of things, she will reaffirm our support for the freedom of the seas, peaceful resolution of disputes and adherence of international law, including freedom of navigation. The White House says Harris will discuss various other initiatives during her visit, including efforts to combat the climate crisis and improve infrastructure. 
This visit to Indonesia will be the third trip she's taken to the Southeast Asia region in the past two years. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. Police in Pennsylvania say there have been four credible sightings of an escaped murderer who's been on the loose since breaking out of Chester County Prison last week. Daniello Calvacante was convicted in the fatal stabbing of his ex-girlfriend, and he's also wanted in his native Brazil in a separate murder case. Lieutenant Colonel George Bivens with the Pennsylvania State Police says the 34-year-old was captured on video this weekend about a mile and a half from the prison, and he says they asked his family for help in tracking him down. We've had the, the um, individual's mother uh, make a recording asking him to surrender peacefully. Uh, it's, it's done in Spanish, or actually Portuguese, and, uh, and it's being broadcast in an effort to uh, facilitate his peaceful surrender. He was serving life without parole for the murder of his girlfriend in 2021. Wall Street was closed today in observance of Labor Day. You're listening to NPR News. There's fresh evidence that prescribing fruits and vegetables is beneficial for people with diet-related disease. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports on a new study published in the American Heart Association journal, Circulation. Doctors have been experimenting with produce prescriptions for a few years, and the new study evaluates the health outcomes of nearly 4,000 participants with diet-related diseases, such as hypertension and diabetes, who received vouchers for free fruits and vegetables. Here's study author Kurt Hager. We were excited to see that the reductions we saw, for example, in blood sugar, were roughly about half of that of commonly prescribed medications. Study authors say if the benefits are maintained over time, this could lead to significant health benefits and help reduce the risk of heart disease and other medical conditions. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. Three. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. City of Boston and its firefighters union have reached a tentative agreement on a new contract. Mayor Michelle Wu said this morning that details of the pact will be shared after it's ratified by union members. The agreement comes after months of negotiations between the two sides. During that time, firefighters picketed and sued the city over the mayor's COVID-19 vaccine mandates. That mandate was dropped earlier this year. The man arrested in connection with the shooting at Boston's Caribbean Festival last month is facing more more charges. Eight people were injured in the incident. Boston police say 30-year-old Gerald Vick of Dorchester is now charged with six of the victim's shootings. He is already facing a weapons charge. And tomorrow is preliminary election day in Worcester. There are five municipal elections on the ballot, including four city council races and one contest for a school committee. The top two vote-getters in tomorrow's election will advance to November's election. Down in St. Petersburg, Florida right now, Tampa Bay is on the scoreboard. It's 3 nothing Rays over Red Sox in the start of the second inning. And the forecast overnight tonight should be pretty nice. Some clouds around, temperatures in the mid-60s. And then for tomorrow, sunny, a lot like today, with highs about 87 degrees tops. 83 degrees now in Boston at 435. Very few Americans say they're better off financially this year than they were last year. That's according to a large new survey. And they're feeling that way despite indicators that say the economy is on the up. 
about a year ago, inflation was like 9%. It was over 9%. And now it's three. That's a great achievement. So what's behind the pessimism Americans have about their own financial lives? That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches. With catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. Steve Harwell, the former lead singer of Smash Mouth, has died. According to the band's manager, the cause of death was acute liver failure. Harwell was 56 years old. NPR's Andrew Limbong has this appreciation. That first Smash Mouth record, 1997's Fushu Meng, was this pretty straight-ahead ska-punk album with song titles like Beer Goggles and Let's Rock, and also this thoughtful ode to getting along with your fellow man. In Walking on the Sun, Steve Harwell bemoans the conflict-ridden state of the world and talks about how it'd be a lot better if we just hung out together and maybe smoked a little. But it isn't some lazy stoner anthem, it's actually a song about urgency. So don't in 2018, the band re-recorded that first album acoustically for its 20-year anniversary. Harwell and the band's primary songwriter, guitarist Greg Camp, told NPR that they wanted to test the metal of their songs. And listen to Harwell make sure Camp gets the spotlight. Wanted to remake it, you know, more stripped down and campfirey. Hmm. Steve and I used to always say that a good song, if it can be played on an acoustic guitar, it's that's a good song. And so we used to sit around the back of the bus and play like Depeche Mode songs on acoustic guitar. And so it was fun to actually do that song that way and confirm that it was pretty darn good song. Pretty, you know, you know pretty darn good because you wrote it. But of course, the band's biggest hit came from their follow-up album, and it's Harrell's voice that's front and center. Somebody once told me the world is gonna roll me. In 1999, All-Star was a top 10 Billboard hit. Today, thanks to age, placement in movies, and memes, it's a cultural touchstone. Hey now, you're an All-Star, get your game on, go play. Hey now, you're a rock star, get the show on, get paid. The band continued making music and touring for decades without ever reaching the highs of All-Star again. But Harwell told NPR in 2018 that he was grateful for the music. People ask me all the time, they say, Steve, do you get sick of singing these songs and all that kind of stuff? And I'm like, no. We're proud to have these iconic songs that Greg has written and uh, be able to perform them every night, you know, so it feels good. In 2021, Smash Mouth played a messy show in upstate New York. Video of Harwell slurring his words and cursing at the audience went viral, and he retired from the band shortly after. In a statement announcing his death, Smash Mouth's manager, Robert Hayes, called him a true American original, quote, a larger-than-life character who shot up into the sky like a Roman candle. Andrew Limbong, NPR News.
Las Vegas relies on casino workers, bartenders, cashiers, valet drivers, among many service and hospitality jobs. But automation and artificial intelligence are taking over some of these tasks. So how does a city built on service work adapt? NPR's Deepa Shivaram brings us this report. Spend just a few hours on the strip in Las Vegas and you'll run into machines doing human jobs everywhere. Instead of checking in with the person at the front desk of a hotel, you can do it on a screen. If you go down to the casino, the machines will learn what kind of games you like and suggest more of them. And if you head over to Planet Hollywood, you could be served by a robot bartender. Hi, Phil. How are you doing? That's Sabrina Bergman. She works at the Tipsy Robot, and her job is to help the robot bartender do its job. When it accidentally knocks over a cup, she'll fix it. If a drink is only poured halfway, she'll top it off at the bar. At the beginning, uh, we, I got a lot of jokes, you know, like, ah, oh, you're a robot, you know what I mean? At the beginning, now people are like, used to it. You know? A second location of Tipsy Robot just opened up in a different hotel on the Strip. But Bergman isn't worried about the robot replacing her. I don't know. I think we're just like, oh, whatever. She says that maybe in 10 years, things will start to change. And she's not wrong. Various studies predict that by 2035, automation in Vegas could impact between 38 to 65 percent of jobs. And in addition to automation, artificial intelligence is becoming more commonplace, too. So now, a city that's heavily relied on tourism to keep it afloat is trying to prepare for a drastically changing economy. The question is, how do you factor in and how do you adapt your economic development strategy to accommodate a world where certain jobs may no longer exist? That's John Restrepo. He's an economist with the group RCG Economics based in Las Vegas. He says companies have a big incentive to cut certain jobs, like cashiers. What do companies have to do to uh, increase their margins. And what happens is oftentimes is companies increase their margins by reducing costs. And labor is a big cost. But in addition to being a service town, Las Vegas is also a union town. The Culinary Union is the largest union in Nevada. Back in 2018, they negotiated protections in their contract that addressed technology and automation. If a company is planning new technology in the workplace, they have to give workers an advance notice, and it's mandatory to provide free training on how to use the technology. Ted Papageorge helped negotiate that contract five years ago. He's now the secretary treasurer of the union, and he's involved in talks for a new contract. At a rally to show support for workers on the Strip, he says they're prepared to make artificial intelligence an issue to strike over. Look, we had a huge fight about technology in previous contract. We're going to have the same fight this time around. But he says it's still early. No one's really sure how much AI could replace jobs and workers. But his priority is making sure that workers have a safety net. How do our folks make sure that the jobs that remain, that we can work them? and that we're not thrown out like an old shoe. We're not gonna stand for that. Experts say artificial intelligence will affect different types of jobs in different ways. Some jobs will be wiped out, some will require retraining, and in some cases, it could help make workers more productive. And then there's the brand new jobs that AI could create that don't even exist yet. In Las Vegas, city officials know they have to start preparing for whatever changes are coming right now. And that starts with getting the community familiar with AI in the first place. Hey, take care. Yeah. At the Las Vegas Chamber of Commerce, local business owners, teachers, and entrepreneurs have gathered to find out how AI can be used in their lives. 
Tony Yi is at this panel. He owns a small moving company in Las Vegas, and he's looking to learn about AI so he can grow his business. I'm really intrigued with AI, and I know it's the next frontier. So it's just like how people didn't believe in the internet back in the 90s. This is the next revolution, and, and if you're not on board, then you're going to be left behind. That's just what, and I don't want to be left behind. Eventually, Tony wants to be able to use AI to essentially function as his HR department, to handle things like evaluations from customers, a job that previously he'd have to hire another person to do. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Las Vegas. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A music legend gets a fresh look in the documentary Little Richard, I Am Everything. It premieres tonight on CNN. NPR TV critic Eric Deggins says the film excels by focusing on the star's roots in queer culture, as well as his struggle with his connection to the culture. As a performer and personality, Little Richard rarely held back. Let it all hang out with the beautiful Little Richard from down in Macon, Georgia. Especially when it came to the subject of his accomplishments and appeal. I want you all to know that I am the Bronze Liberace. Shut up! But director Lisa Cortez's expansive film asks a poignant question about a pioneering performer often called the architect of rock and roll. It's best phrased here by Juilliard School ethnomusicologist Fredera Hadley. What would it do to the American mythology of rock music to say that its pioneers were black queer people? For music fans, the film is a poignant reminder of just how good Little Richard was, especially in the 1950s and 60s. We see him captivate crowds with his percussive piano style and preacher's swagger, sweating through loads of pancake makeup with his pencil-thin mustache and serious pompadour hairstyle. We see his influence on everyone from Prince to the Beatles, from interviews with celebrities like Mick Jagger, Billy Porter, and John Waters. Waters says as a youth, he even stole a record of Little Richard's hit, Lucille. The first songs that you love that your parents hate is the beginning of the soundtrack of your life. And in my case, it was most definitely Lucille. Born Richard Pennyman in Macon, Georgia in 1932, Little Richard was openly gay from a young age, kicked out of his family home by a father who expected him to be more masculine. Performing on the Chitlin circuit of black-centered clubs through the South, he worked early shows singing and drag, later learning his performing style and piano playing from other black gay performers at the time, Billy Wright and Esquerita. And when one of his early recording sessions wasn't going well, he went to a nearby bar to blow off steam. He jumped on a piano there and played a song about sex. For the film, keyboardist and singer Corey Henry recreates that moment. 
The song, with sanitized lyrics of course, became Little Richard's first big hit. The film also delves into periods when he became devoutly religious, denouncing his life as a gay man and his success in rock and roll. He saw those triumphs as encouraging the devil, but his baby boomer fans saw them as a liberation from the strict mores of their parents. Here one expert describes Little Richard singing gospel on the Muscular Dystrophy Association Telethon in 1983. When I hear his passionate singing at this time, it's hard to tell how much is running towards God versus running away from himself. Little Richard died in 2020 at age 87. The film Little Richard, I Am Everything is a masterpiece and worthy tribute. It traces how the genre's earliest expressions of rock and roll spirit were rooted in both queer culture in general and his specific experiences as a gender-bending gay man. I'm Eric Deggins. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, an exclusive interview with the top counterintelligence official in Ukraine. And tomorrow morning on WBUR, some families new to America are getting ready to send their kids to school in Boston. We'll hear about what getting them vaccinated and prepared for school means to them. Listen again when you wake up tomorrow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Johnson & Wales University. Think you know Jay Wu? From nursing to graphic design, let Johnson & Wales surprise you. More at jwu.edu. Should be partly cloudy tonight, clear enough to see the waning moon, about 66 for a low. And then more summery September days coming up. Tomorrow, sunshine and clouds sharing the sky. Temperatures in the mid-80s once again. Wednesday, sunshine dominates in the mid-80s. Then for the rest of the week, sunny and likely hot could hit 90 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR, 83 degrees now in the Boston area. The time is 449. WBUR supporters include Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Medical, regulatory, and other careers at vrtx.com. And Volante Farms in Needham, with the first hint of fall, local apples, mums, and cider donuts, fresh every morning. Volantefarms.com for a current list of apples and ours. For Palestinian Americans, visiting their homeland often meant strict security checks and a roundabout journey through Jordan. (laughs) It's a nightmare. But decades of travel restrictions have come to an end for Palestinian Americans. And in exchange, Israelis may get to travel to the U.S. without a visa. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Scott Detrow. In the spring of 2022, Roxana Garcia Espejo was hired as a Microsoft trainer, helping customers with Excel and other applications. It had been a lifelong dream for me. Like, I'm working for Microsoft. I mean, like, how cool is this, right? For Garcia Espejo, who became a caregiver for her aging parents in the pandemic, the job's flexibility was another huge positive. As she told NPR's Andrea Hsu, My work-life balance was... Completely changed. She only had to be in the office 20% of the time. She began exercising. Her blood pressure dropped. She adapted well to being remote, loving the lively discussions of the online chat. As if it were the all-day chatter of all the teams that I was a part of. But all of that 
was short-lived. This spring, Garcia Espejo's entire team was cut as part of the mass layoffs that hit Microsoft and the rest of the tech industry. She's been searching for another remote position with no luck. There aren't as many as there were a year ago. And with her unemployment soon running out, she's starting to consider in-person jobs. I guess I don't look at it anymore as I'm holding out. I look at it as I'm in control of where I want my ship to sail. This is all part of a larger trend we've been seeing. This fall, employers all across the country are rolling out stricter requirements for in-person work. The financial firm BlackRock has asked people to come in four days a week, up from three. Amazon says some remote workers will need to move close to a hub to keep their jobs. Even Zoom employees are now required to go back to the office. And it's not just the private sector. The federal government also wants their workers back on site. Earlier this year, the House of Representatives passed a bill called the Show Up Act. It is clear extended telework is not working for the American people. Our constituents have been calling our office and wondering why the IRS, the Social Security Administration, the VA aren't answering their phones. It's abundantly clear that something must change. The Biden administration weighed in, too, telling agency leaders to ramp in-person work up again. And like so many bosses across the country, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg urged his staff to come back on site. I do believe we need to be around each other in person more than we are now to ensure this department's long-term success. Back in the spring of 2020, as stay at home became the global mantra, a lot of companies encouraged employees who were able to work at home to do just that. As the pandemic went on, many people got used to the setup. Their routines had changed. So even as the virus faded and much of the rest of life went back to what it had been before, many white-collar workers kept working from home. There was a lot of talk about whether this would become the new permanent norm. We started to hear a lot of bold predictions about the future of work, how the pandemic had blown up the concept of the office forever. Anyone who thought that, like, the future was wholly remote and that there would no longer be offices, that, like, the shift would be, (laughs) you know, so full scale, that was really, I think, uh, ignoring a lot of the realities about how managers work and how leaders in the office, how, like the, the scenarios that they like. Ann Peterson is the host of the podcast Work Appropriate and co-wrote the book Out of Office about the promise and the problems of remote work. I asked her big picture how she would describe the current state of things. I think we're in a moment of flex. And I say that that's a great word to describe both the, the fact that like things are continuing to change, but then also that what most employees and employers want is flexibility, both in the times that they're in the office and how often they're in the office. They want much more control over the when and how they work. That doesn't necessarily mean that they never want to go into an office. And I think that's where some of the the conversation really falls apart is when people are like, oh, can you believe that these employers want people back in the office? What they are doing is calling people back into the office for flexible amounts of time, mm-hmm. usually two days a week, three days a week. And I think the the place where you see people quitting or threatening to quit or offices threatening to fire their employees are people who've moved away and don't have that capacity at all, yeah. right? What do you think in this moment of flex as you put it, what do you think the biggest positives of this moment are and negatives of this moment are for the broader workplace culture? Well, flexibility is fantastic. Like, There is no reason why, especially for people who do jobs that are mostly in their brains, right? Our brains can't work 
from eight to five, eight to six, like they need breaks from that sort of work. And so being able to say, oh, I go pick up my kid from school at two and then I come home and then I go back to work for a couple of hours, like that's fantastic. It also makes it much easier to keep people who are caregivers in the workplace mm -hmm. because that flexibility is absolutely necessary given the state of childcare in our country right now. The negative, and this has been the negative since the beginning of the pandemic, is that when you can do work anywhere and at any time, you can do work anywhere and at any time. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people have struggled and continue to struggle with trying to figure out guardrails against the influx of work into all parts of their lives. I want to talk about research for a moment. Because there is research that, sh that yeah. shows that people are more productive in the office. And there's also research that shows that people are more productive at home. Is that the best lens to think about this? <laughs> what is a better way to think about this and, 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 and try and assess what's going on? I think that people have to figure out for themselves uh, the place where they do the best work. And so working with managers to try to create consistency, to create scenarios where people can do that work that also matches with... What does the work require? Does the work say, we need to be in the office for like this brainstorming session, but you don't need to be in the office when you're answering emails. Just being smarter about like listening to your employees and also not being scared all the time that they're like screwing around. People want to get their work done. And if you try to create policies that are always assuming that everyone is trying to like work three jobs and not work your job, it's just going to feel like surveillance heavy and like you don't trust your employees. Yeah. And that's a really toxic corporate culture. There is a theme to almost all of your answers in this conversation. And it comes down to everybody is different. Different setups work for different people. <laughs> this is not a binary oversimplified issue. Given that, how do you start having a conversation about this that's productive? Yeah, I would say the first thing to understand is that there a lot of the reason why executives, leaders, managers want people back in the office is because the way that they know how to do their jobs is through in-person contact, right? Through walking around. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot harder to learn the skill of managing in a remote or flexible culture. And it takes time. I think what a smart company would do would be to, to understand that and to understand why the other employees are so against the need to come in as much as maybe the managers and executives want them to. Mm -hmm. And then to zoom out and look at the work itself and think, okay, what does demand presence and what doesn't? And how can we have a collaborative conversation with all the employees? That's Ann Peterson, the co-author of Out of Office and writer of the Culture Study newsletter and also host the podcast, Work Appropriate. And thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. This has been a pleasure. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From Capital One, with the Capital One Quicksilver card. Details at CapitalOne.com. What's in your wallet? Credit approval required. Capital One Bank, USA, NA. From Policy Genius, an online marketplace committed to modernizing the life insurance industry. 
Agents are available to compare life insurance quotes from multiple companies side-by-side. Learn more at policygenius.com. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Ukraine is fighting Russia on the ground. It's also fighting it in cyberspace. Still ahead, a top Ukrainian intelligence official wants more help from Western allies to fight cyber attacks. We want to be protected and we act as a shield to the whole democratic world. So we want our shield to be big and strong. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Our exclusive interview with Ukraine's top counterintelligence official coming up next. The Montana Democratic Party left dozens of Republican legislative seats go uncontested last year. Now the Democrats are saying they're not going to let it happen again. And the film My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3 hits theaters soon, and this time the whole family heads for Greece. Who wants Souvlaki? Paging Souvlaki. Anybody by the name of Souvlaki on his flight. What else to expect from Hollywood despite the writers and actors strike coming up? It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. In closely watched talks in Russia, President Vladimir Putin today rejected efforts by his Turkish counterpart to revive a UN-backed deal to allow the safe passage of grain from Ukraine. NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow it's the latest setback since Russia exited the grain deal in July. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan came to the resort city of Sochi, hoping to coax President Putin back into the deal. Yet at a press conference following the talks, Putin recycled complaints that the UN agreement helped Ukraine export its grain but cheated Russia. The Kremlin leader told Erdogan Moscow was open to restarting the grain agreement only once Western-imposed restrictions on Russian banking and logistics had been lifted. Putin also accused the UN deal of primarily helping wealthier countries and touted Russian efforts to provide food to the world's poorest. The UN and Erdogan counter the grain agreement has benefited millions and expressed hope Russia would eventually re-enter the deal. Charles Maines, NPR News. Moscow. President Biden traveled to Philadelphia today to mark the holiday. Biden telling a crowd gathered for a Labor Day parade. The U.S. continues to create jobs, including high-paying manufacturing jobs. 800,000 new manufacturing jobs. But you wouldn't know from all the negative news you hear, but we're getting through this one of the greatest job creation periods in American history. For real, that's a fact. The president's appearance comes during what has been a particularly active summer for organized labor in the U.S., with two strikes in Hollywood and another against major automakers being threatened in Detroit. Biden has repeatedly called himself the most pro-union president ever, citing his use of executive actions to promote worker organizing efforts. 
A federal trial gets underway tomorrow that will examine Georgia's congressional and state legislative districts and whether they violate the Voting Rights Act. Sam Greenglass has more from member station WABE. This summer, the U.S. Supreme Court affirmed that Alabama had to redraw its congressional maps. And now that decision is rippling through other states like Georgia, where a lawsuit argues that the maps drawn after the last census illegally dilute the power of black voters. Here's the Brennan Center's Michael Lee. There is an epic fight for control of the U.S. House right now. And what happens in states like Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, North Carolina is going to be very impactful. Georgia's population boom has been driven in large part by black residents who tend to vote Democratic. But Republican lawmakers drew maps that resulted in their party gaining a congressional seat. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. Two NASA astronauts, along with two others who are aboard the International Space Station, have returned safely to Earth today. A capsule launched by the private company SpaceX splashing down early today off the Florida coast, along with two U.S. astronauts or one from the United Arab Emirates and a Russian cosmonaut. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. Marchers wearing colorful Caribbean costumes stepped out today as part of the annual West Indian American Day Parade in New York. The Brooklyn Parade marks the culmination of Carnival Week and is one of the largest celebrations of Caribbean culture in the U.S. The parade routinely attracts more than a million people. It's become known as one of the city's most spirited annual events. New York Governor Kathy Hochul and Mayor Eric Adams both showing up. Steve Harwell, the former singer for the band Smash Mouth, has died. He was 56 years old. According to the band's manager, Harwell had acute liver failure. NPR's Andrew Limbong has more. Smash Mouth went from being a ska punk band on their first record to something moodier and groovier on their 1999 album Astro Lounge. It was also the album where they became the rare 90s pop rock band making charting singles referencing climate change with their hit song All Star. They never got that big again, but in 2018, Steve Harwell told NPR that he didn't mind playing the hits. People ask me all the time, they say, Steve, do you get sick of singing these songs and all that kind of stuff? And I'm like, no. We're proud to have these iconic songs. Andrew Limbong and Pierre News. Authorities in Texas say nearly two dozen people were injured today when a driver crashed into a busy Denny's restaurant in a Houston suburb. However, they say none of the injuries appeared to be life-threatening. The driver was not hurt. Victims ranged in age from 12 to 60. Police say it's still not clear what caused a man to crash his SUV into a wall of the restaurant. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston University police are sending out extra patrols after a series of break-ins on the school's campus. Two burglaries were reported from BU residences on Bay State Road during the recent move-in period. BU Deputy Police Chief Robert Malloy says the perpetrators appear to be targeting open windows. We actively patrol that area, and there's a lot of activity during move-in week and people coming and going, and the weather's been warm and people leave their windows open, but I've been here several years and never seen like two in one night like that. MIT police reported a third burglary at a fraternity on Bay State Road. Malloy says the BU Police Department has identified a possible person of interest. A report finds that Massachusetts coastal habitats store a significant amount of carbon compared to the rest of the Northeast Coast. The authors gathered data from Maine to Long Island and New York. Here's WBR's Paula Mora. 
Ocean habitats like salt marshes and seagrass sequester more carbon per acre than other ecosystems such as forests. The report found that Massachusetts coastal habitats store 57% of the so-called blue carbon in the region, mostly in the salt marshes. Phil Calaruso is with the Environmental Protection Agency. He says that if these habitats are lost or degraded, they would release carbon into the atmosphere. You just end up adding a lot more carbon back into fueling climate change once we lose those habitats. Marshes also help protect the region from coastal flooding. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moura. Anxiety levels in pets can increase as we end our summer routines and as kids head back to school. Laney Nee with the Animal Rescue League of Boston says animals are extremely aware of our change in routine and that can cause them to stress out. She says there are some obvious signs of increased anxiety levels. Panting, pacing, following everybody around a little bit more, being a little bit more hypervigilant when people are around or the opposite. So they might start to retreat a little bit be a little more hesitant about going outside, coming inside. Nee says you can help them adjust to your new routine by giving them treats or toys as you hustle around the house and get ready to leave. She also says it's important not to make a big deal when you leave or when you come back home. In the forecast, so lovely. Tomorrow, just about as warm as today has been, 87 degrees tops, clouds and sunshine both. Wednesday should be sunny and dry, still summery. Temperatures in the mid-80s as of now. It looks like we could break 90 on Thursday. This is 90.9 WBUR, 82 degrees at 509. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. Intelligence and technology have played key roles in the war in Ukraine. The head of the cyber department at the Security Service of Ukraine knows a thing or two about both. NPR cybersecurity correspondent Jenna McLaughlin sat down with him in Kyiv for a rare exclusive interview. It was a sunny summer day when my producer Katya and I were ushered into the heavily guarded headquarters of the Ukrainian Security Service. We pass armed guards, sandbags stacked against windows, and finally climb a dimly lit staircase into the official press building. Awesome. And I'm just going to record my phone as a backup. Then we were allowed to turn on our microphones. Sure. Awesome. There we go. This room we're sitting in has a lot of history. This is a pretty old building. I don't remember when it was constructed, but previously it was the building used by KGB. The KGB, the infamous and brutal former Soviet spy service. Intelligence officers don't typically grant interviews, particularly during a war. But Ilya Vichuk, the head of the cyber department of the Ukrainian Security Service, or the SBU, seemed eager to share, at least in part to prove they're different from the former occupants of this building. Vichuk is tall and muscle-bound, with a cleanly shaved head and a serious demeanor. He immediately dives into the details of a recent Russian operation to hack into Ukrainian military communication systems. So uh, they planned these operations for a long period of time, and there were some hacker groups that they moved closer to the front lines and one of their missions was to capture devices and get the, first of all, the, the understanding what uh, systems we are using and then to find ways to penetrate the systems. This is one of many examples of the cat and mouse game between Russia and Ukraine in cyberspace. These attacks might not all make the headlines, but they're constant. And Russia's always stealing information, even when Vichyuk's team catches them. 
Russian cyber attacks in Ukraine over the years reads like a list of Russia's greatest hits. So first it was Black Energy in 2015. Uh, this was the first destructive attack on our power grid. Next, a huge hacking campaign against Ukraine's train control systems, which ultimately failed, but could have been devastating. Followed by an infamous attack in 2017 called NotPetya, a Russian virus aimed at Ukraine that leaked out and cost companies around the world billions of dollars to recover from. Then, in February of 2022, came the full-scale invasion. So, since the very beginning, they really thought that there would be a blitzkrieg. So, they tried to use all the, how I say, aces in their sleeves uh, during the first days. All the aces in their sleeves. Experts around the world expected a Russian cyber tour de force, shutting the entire country down. Moscow did hack military communications, spread disinformation in every direction, and launched destructive digital attacks against government agencies all over the country. The concern was so great that people at SBU were physically hauling servers away from downtown Kiev to protect them, Vichyuk recalls. There was a little bit of risk of Kiev to be uh, surrounded, so we needed to take the most important uh, databases and hardware and to relocate it from Kiev. Ultimately, Ukraine held strong against the cyber barrage. There was damage, but Vichyuk says the impact was limited. He says that's thanks in part to years of suffering and learning from Russia's attacks and help from allies. That includes the U.S. Cyber Command. A team of experts visited Ukraine months before the invasion, helping to study Ukraine's defenses and providing hardware and software that Pachuk says they're still using today. Uh, Cyber Command, they came to us in December, a couple of months before the invasion. Together with them, we inspected a couple of our objects of critical infrastructure that we thought will be in focus of their attacks. And it happened just like that. It's now been 18 months of fighting. The focus has rightfully been on dead and wounded. But there's still real concern about how sophisticated cyber attacks paired with things like missiles and drones can inflict real damage. That's especially true with the power grid, an increasing concern as Ukraine prepares for another harsh winter. While some Ukrainians are fighting on the front lines, others are using their digital skills to volunteer. And that includes career cyber criminals. So there was literally a line of people standing to security service of Ukraine, calling, text messaging, etc., and asking how can we help, what should we do. There were a number of even convicted criminals, cyber criminals, that we as security service convicted that came now it's over and we are focused on protecting our state, so tell us what to do and where to go. Some Ukrainian cyber experts remain critical of the government. They argue that corruption and past ties to Russian intelligence have prevented agencies like SBU from being fully prepared for this war. Vichuk says he's aware of those allegations, but... We don't need money. He says he wants international partners to donate technology and services, not money that could be misused. We want the system to be as transparent as it's possible. We want you to understand that we want to be protected and we act as a shield to the whole democratic world. So we want our shield to be big and strong. In exchange, he says Ukraine has a lot to offer the world when it comes to exposing Russian tools and tricks. New doctrines will be written and adopted according to what has happened here in Ukraine. Vichyuk firmly believes this is the moment his agency was made for, what he was born to do. It was my dream since childhood, you know, I mm, like James Bond films and stuff like that. And if you like to take responsibility and to take actions, I do believe that it's a very great profession. Never boring.
No, for sure. <laughs> Never born. When the war is over, Vityuk says he looks forward to free and open skies. I also have had interesting hobbies like uh, skydiving and stuff like that, but because of this Russian bad people now that the sky is closed and I cannot jump, so that also makes me more angry uh, and adds to my devotion to finish this war as fast as it is possible. For the first time in almost two hours of talking about war, Vichuk cracks a smile, looking forward to that next jump. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News, Kyiv. It's been nearly a month since wildfires destroyed the town of Lahaina, Hawaii, on the island of Maui, killing at least 115 people. And even though hundreds of people are still unaccounted for, officials say they're making plans to let some survivors back into the burn zone to visit their destroyed homes. NPR's Adrian Florido is on Maui. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Ari. Let's begin with the victims and the people who are still missing almost a month after the fire. What more can you tell us about them? Well, officially, the death toll uh, does stand at 115, like you mentioned. Uh, that number has not changed since two weeks ago. Uh, it's now been four weeks since the fire and six days since officials ended the search for victims. And the unsettling thing is that there are still almost 400 names on the list of people uh, that the police say are unaccounted for. Uh, that number could still change, Ari, as people who are actually safe realize they are on that list but shouldn't be. Uh, but people here are also grappling with the prospect that because of the intensity of this fire, uh, some victims may not ever be found and identified and uh, that we might not ever know the true number of victims. Uh, it's a haunting prospect uh, that's becoming more real because in the last few days, officials have started uh, the cleanup phase. And I mentioned that officials are considering allowing survivors back into the burn zone. How much of that is because of the pressure they're getting from survivors who want to get back to their properties? Uh, that's a big part of it. Uh, officials have been getting a lot of pressure uh, to let people do that. Uh, I spoke yesterday with a Lahaina resident named Amy Mobs. Uh, her home survived the fires, but the homes of many of her neighbors did not. Uh, and she told me that many people she's spoken to are eager to visit their burned homes in the hopes of finding something that survived. Anything that's left, people just want something. You know, they want to see it for themselves and, yeah, just to know that maybe something's there that they can find before the demolition and the cleanup and all the other stuff that is going to happen in time. The burn zone, Ari, has been almost entirely off limits uh, since the fire. And uh, a lot of people have been asking, as we mentioned, the Maui County mayor for assurance that they would be allowed in uh, before cleanup started. Uh, he finally addressed this a couple of days ago and said that his office is preparing the protocol so that people can get back into the burn zone. But he said that will not happen uh, before uh, hazardous uh, materials are removed uh, from the burn sites. And uh, the timeline on when that's going to happen is not clear yet. And, and as the weeks go by, where are Lahaina's residents actually living? Uh, a lot of them are staying in nearby hotels paid for by uh, vouchers from the federal government. Uh, others are staying with friends and family in nearby towns. Um, but a lot of people have also left Maui for the U.S. mainland. And uh, this is one of the great fears here in Lahaina. <clears throat> excuse me, that the recovery from this tragedy is going to take so long and be so expensive that a lot of longtime Lahaina residents won't be able to wait it out or afford to rebuild. Uh, I spoke with Makani Christensen. He's been working with a lot of the community help centers that have popped up to provide food and other services to survivors. He told me about an interaction he had at one of these centers. A lady was out there with her two kids, no slippers, and I, I looked at her, I was like, hey, are you okay? What do you need? She lost everything. And she says, no, I'm okay, I'm leaving in two days. 
you know so it's happening man it's a hundred percent happening guys are leaving and they're not coming back the work that uh, Christensen and a lot of other community members are doing right now uh, is aimed at trying to give people the support they need so they can hang on until they are able to rebuild so that they don't feel like their only choice is to leave. And in the burn zone, how are things going? Where, where is the cleanup? Um, when does it seem like residents might be able to safely reenter? Uh, well, the cleanup is being done in phases, and this first phase that just started is being uh, done by the uh, Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, EPA hazardous materials crews are going through the burn zone property by property and searching for hazardous materials, things like paint and solvents and batteries. Uh, and once they've removed them, they're going to be applying a layer of adhesive over the ash that's settled on the ground so that wind and later parts of the cleanup don't kick this ash up into the air. Uh, one thing the EPA has said <clears throat> is that because um, you know, it is something that a lot of people are concerned about, that if their crews do come across suspected human remains during this process, that they're going to stop the cleanup on that property immediately uh, and inform the police. It's NPR's Adrian Florido on Maui. Thank you. Thanks, Ari. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, a fall film preview from critic Bob Mondello. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Martha's Vineyard International Film Fest, September 5th through 10th at Martha's Vineyard Film Center, mvfilmfest.com, funded in part by the Mass Office of Travel and Tourism. Patriot Place in Foxborough is getting a new home decor retailer to replace the recently closed Bed Bath & Beyond store. Restoration Hardware is expected to open an outlet store sometime this fall. In addition to home decor items, the store is expected to sell furniture, light fixtures, and products for babies, children, and teenagers. There are currently two Restoration Hardware locations in Massachusetts. One is in Boston and the other is in Rentham. This is WBUR. It's 521. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. In the forecast, we must be doing something right because it keeps on being sunny. After a beautiful Labor Day today, we should have partly cloudy skies tonight in the mid-60s and then partly to mostly sunny tomorrow and Wednesday. Could hang out in the mid-80s both days. There may be more sunshine and even higher temperatures coming up later in the week. This is 90.9 WBUR, 82 degrees now in Boston. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. The political divide between urban and rural voters has been growing over the past few decades, with Democrats often struggling to motivate people who live in rural areas. 
For 2024, Democrats are trying to chip away at GOP margins in state races, including in Montana, where organizers hope to revive Democrats' hopes in deeply red places. Montana Public Radio's Shaley Rager has more. On a clear August night, just outside of South Central Absorkey, Montana, a potluck to talk politics drew a crowd of 50 under the shadow of the Beartooth Mountains. My dad uh, made the, the brisket tonight, so thank you for that. I hope he wasn't counting on leftovers because there's really, there's nothing left. Tommy Flanagan, a political organizer whose family has ranged in the area for generations, is emceeing the kickoff party for the newly revived Stillwater County Democratic Central Committee. He's the co-chair. When we were preparing for this a little bit, people would ask me, isn't this type of event just sort of preaching to the choir? Right? And I said, there is no choir to preach to. Stillwater County is red, like really red. Former President Donald Trump won the county in 2020 with 78% of the vote. But Democrats in the area found renewed momentum when Flanagan ran for the State House of Representatives in 2022. Flanagan ran against a previously uncontested Republican. He disagreed with her hardline conservative views and didn't want to let her go unchallenged. Like we can have another unopposed race or we can say not in Stillwater County, right? We're going to give people a choice on the ballot this year. And so I hope that's what I did with my campaign. Flanagan got more than 1,200 votes running on a centrist message focused on agriculture issues and access to public education. Democrats call that a success for a new and openly gay candidate in a conservative district. I had people tell me I've never voted for a Democrat ever before in my life and I voted for you. And for me, that's what this is about. It's about moving the needle one step at a time back to the center. He ultimately lost that race by a lot, 46 points. But it's not always about winning the race. It's about running in the race, says Rob Saldine, a political scientist at the University of Montana. When you do not even have a presence, you don't even have a heartbeat in large swaths of a particular state, you're just on the way to uh, a steep decline. He says Democrats have to play the long game, that building a strong base starts with what can feel like incremental steps. When you have these lopsided margins in the rural counties, well, if you're a Democrat, you just cannot make that up. There just aren't enough votes. So you don't need to be winning these rural counties, but, but you need to have those margins be a little tighter. Montana was once called purple, but saw a Republican sweep of all statewide offices in 2020. Two years later, Republicans won a supermajority in the state legislature. Democrats left 37 of 150 legislative seats uncontested, the highest number of uncontested races in a decade. Now, just one Democrat remains in statewide office, U.S. Senator John Tester who's up for re-election in 2024. So to say the stakes are high for Montana Democrats this year is an understatement. John Tester needs your vote. We need John Tester. We need each and every one of your votes. That's Sheila Hogan, executive director of the state party. She hopes Tester's popularity will encourage high voter turnout. And when voters get to the polls, Democrats don't want Tester to be the only Democratic candidate on the ballot. Here's Hogan at the kickoff event. I don't know that will be blue all over the place, but I'd like to see a little bit of purple. Did you catch that? A little bit of purple is the goal. That's where Democrats in Montana are at now after losing so much ground to Republicans. Saldin says that kind of power consolidation for one party isn't healthy for democracy. 
It just feeds polarization, and it, it pushes each party to be a more uh, extreme version of itself. As Democrats try to even the playing field here, they're relying on some out-of-state support from Contest Every Race, a national campaign recruiting and funding Democrats in hyper-local elections. Contest Every Race aims to spend $10 million on rural Democratic organizing efforts this cycle. Two major donors to the campaign are an investment fund founded by a Silicon Valley billionaire and the Progressive Rural Democracy Initiative. Back at the potluck, Kathleen Ralph reminisced on the days when there were several active Democratic candidates in Stillwater County. If you don't have two people running, then there's no, there's no reason for them to be responsive to what you feel. Too many of our elected leaders don't bother to talk. They're invited to meetings and they don't come. And so we need to need competition. That's the name of the American game. If Democrats don't gain some ground this election cycle, the hole they're in will only get deeper. For NPR News, I'm Shaylee Rager in Helena. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Hundreds of Boston-area activists showed their support for the ongoing entertainment industry strike today. The Greater Boston Labor Council helped organize a march nearly a mile long in solidarity with the writers and actors. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez has more. Outside the Boston Park Plaza Hotel, supporters marched toward Downtown Crossing to tunes played by the Boston Area Brigade of Activist Musicians. This summer, members of the entertainment union SAG-AFTRA went on strike while negotiating the terms of a new labor agreement. Darlene Lombos is with the Greater Boston Labor Council, which helped organize the event. She says it's the perfect holiday to rally for those on strike. We on Labor Day just want to show our solidarity and our support and our love for these courageous workers. SAG member Sophie Crafts is a movie extra. She says the New England chapter of the union has been very active during the strike. We've had at least one event every week since the strike began, and I've just seen people eager to volunteer and bring whatever talents they have to the table to raise awareness. Kraft says it's been tough being out of work during the strike, but she believes the changes she and her colleagues are fighting for are worth it. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. This footnote, many WBUR employees are SAG-AFTRA members but are covered by a different contract than film and television actors. This is 90.9 WBUR. Partly cloudy skies tonight. Clear enough to see the waning moon, though. About 66 degrees for a low. More summery September days ahead. Tomorrow, sunshine and clouds sharing the sky. Temperatures in the mid-80s again. Wednesday, sunshine. Temperatures in the mid-80s. Rest of the week could be sunny and likely hot, possibly hitting 90 degrees. Down in St. Petersburg, Florida, the Red Sox are now on the board in the... Uh, top of the fifth inning, Tampa Bay leads Boston 3-1. to one. This is the first game of their series. WBUR supporters include Lesley University. Learn from mental health and wellness experts at Lesley University and prepare to make a difference. Learn more at lesley.edu. Very few Americans say they're better off financially this year than they were last year. That's according to a large new survey. And they're feeling that way despite indicators that say the economy is on the up. 
about a year ago, inflation was like 9%. It was over 9%. And now it's three. That's a great achievement. So what's behind the pessimism Americans have about their own financial lives? That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Congress gets back to business tomorrow after the summer recess and top of the agenda, funding the government to stave off a potential partial shutdown at the end of the month. Meanwhile, President Biden is calling September a, quote, month of action for responding to the influx of migrants arriving in New York. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports administration officials plan to work with the state to expedite work permits to fill labor needs. The plan comes as New York Governor Kathy Hochul and New York City Mayor Eric Adams have intensified criticism of the White House. They argue the White House is not doing enough to help with the migration crisis that has strained city and state resources. More than 100,000 migrants have traveled to New York City from the southern border. Some bust there with the help of Republican governors. And local officials say more than half are being cared for in city shelters. The crisis has highlighted a divide in Biden's own party over how to handle ongoing migration challenges. So Biden is motivated to address the situation as quickly as possible, as it's become a political liability for him and his party leading into the 2024 election. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. Tens of thousands of Burning Man Festival attendees stuck at the site in the Nevada desert after heavy rains last week left the area thick with mud are getting out today. Authorities closed the road in and out because cars couldn't navigate the clay-like mud. Many, though, did walk out on their own. At least one person died. Authorities say weather has improved and they've removed enough of the mud to allow cars to leave. Meanwhile, some of the attendees took it all in stride. Army vet Angela Peacock. You know, we're helping each other break camps down, uh, put our stuff away, you know, just doing the best we can. It's actually a very good vibe here. Everybody's getting along. The festival attracts artists, musicians, and performers. You're listening to NPR News. As a staunchly secular country, France has strict rules against religious attire in public schools. But as NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports, a new restriction as school starts this year is drawing fire. Outward religious symbols, the Muslim veil, Jewish yarmulke, and large Christian crosses have been banned since 2004. But France's new education minister just added the long flowing robe known as the abaya to that list. Gabrielle Attal said the increased number of students wearing the abaya is a test for French secularism. High school teacher Samia Essaba disagrees. Nos jeunes filles portent des vestes longues, des robes longues. If some of our girls wear them, it's to cover themselves and avoid comments from the boys, she says. The abaya is not Nothing to do with proselytizing. Left-wing parliamentarian Clémentine Autain called the minister's decision a smokescreen. That way, the government doesn't have to talk about the real problems in public schools, she said. Eleanor Beersley, NPR News, Paris. West Virginia University says it wants to slash the language departments and dozens of other programs as officials try to close a $45 million budget shortfall. This is lawmakers approved a new cybersecurity program in a special session last month while also refusing to bail the school out. Many students, though, say foreign languages and other humanities programs are essential to their education. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A Rhode Island man is due in court this month on charges he defrauded a Massachusetts nonprofit. Suffolk County DA Kevin Hayden says 38-year-old Jonathan Alexander Mateo bought 142 Apple laptops while he worked at Mass Challenge and stole most of them. Mass Challenge helps startup companies grow. The total value of the laptops is estimated at more than $100,000. Some residents in Tewksbury may be left without water for days after a water main break. The town manager and Department of Public Works said in a joint statement that the break yesterday caused issues in two apartment complexes. The Ames Pond apartment complex and the Catamount Road neighborhood are both affected. And the Worcester community is mourning the loss of a high school student who died suddenly last week. The family of 14-year-old Harris Wallowbeck says that he died after taking the so-called one-chip challenge that involves eating a tortilla chip sold by the company Pocky that is seasoned with two of the hottest peppers in the world, the boy's family says an autopsy is pending. Red Sox and Rays in a holiday matinee down in St. Petersburg. Rays are still holding a 3-1 lead over the Sox after five innings. Should be a beautiful night tonight. Partly partly cloudy skies, that is, in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, starting up with fog, then a good share of sunshine and some fair weather clouds around. Temperatures in the mid-80s again. Then Wednesday, bright sunshine still in the 80s. 82 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the new season of Silent Witness. Every dead body tells a story in this long-running forensic crime drama starring Amelia Fox. New season streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI. Dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A. IKU.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. With a little help from a hot pink comedy. Hi, Barbie! Hi, Ken! Hollywood finally recovered from the pandemic this summer. North American cinemas have sold roughly $4 billion worth of tickets since Memorial Day. Now, with writers and actors on strike and some films delaying openings, The question is whether the film industry can keep up the momentum. In his fall film preview, critic Bob Mondello says the answer is yes, for a while. Among the potential blockbusters you will not see this fall because they've hightailed it to 2024 are Dune 2 and the superhero origin story Kraven the Hunter. Just another man hunting for a trophy. But as the year's hot pink heroine could have told you, when the patriarchy runs for cover, what the? women will be happy to save the day. Actually, three women in the case of Marvel's The Marvels, who are working together because they sort of have to. Our powers are entangled. So we switch places whenever we use them. I could totally show you. No! We're a team. Oh, no, 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 we're not a team. We're not a team. The Marvels aren't the only women filling the blockbuster gap. The heroine of a Hunger Games prequel... From District 12. Lucy Gray Bear will be fighting for her life decades before Katniss Everdeen took down the regime of President Coriolanus Snow. Ironically, Lucy will be mentored by that same Corio Snow as an 18-year-old. What does my mentor do besides bring me roses? I do my best to take care of you. You really want to take care of me in that arena? Start by thinking I can actually win. Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes is a dystopia, and so is The Creator, which also centers on a woman, well, a child. Are you going to love her? No. Sort of a child. 
You gotta be a good person to go to heaven. Son, we're just saying we can't go to heaven because you're not good. And I'm not a person. She is artificial intelligence. Do you have anything to do with the thing is? She looks like a little girl now, but she's growing. And she's a weapon. Whoever has that kid wins the war. A super weapon, which won't surprise parents who attend the Creator. Elsewhere, men will still have a foothold in blockbusters. Joaquin Phoenix as an egotistical French emperor in Ridley Scott's Napoleon. I'm the first to admit when I make a mistake. I simply never do. And Robert De Niro and Leo DiCaprio conspiring to steal from the Osage Nation. They're like buzzards circling our people. In Martin Scorsese's 1920s crime drama Killers of the Flower Moon. The land had oil on it. Money flows freely here now. I do love that money, sir. Those are the only big-budget epics braving a season when actors and writers can't promote them because they're on strike. But there's an upside to a thinned-out blockbuster schedule. It makes space for mid-budget films, say the Meg Ryan-David Duchovny rom-com What Happens Later, about ex-lovers stranded by a snowstorm in a tiny regional airport. They're saying this could be the storm of the century. What are you worried about? Everything. I was diagnosed with anticipatory anxiety. Is that a real thing? Oh, yeah. Relax. You're already living out your worst-case scenario. What? being stuck here with you? Yeah. You make a good point. Also biopics like Maestro, in which Bradley Cooper plays symphony conductor Leonard Bernstein. Are you itching to move? No, I'm not. Mm -hmm. Good. Actually, at all. Or Rustin, about civil rights leader Bayard Rustin, who was instrumental in coordinating the 1963 March on Washington. We are committed to altering the trajectory of this country towards freedom. Or Cassandro, in which Gael Garcia Bernal plays a rule-breaking professional wrestler from the 1980s who was openly gay. They don't let exoticals win. I want to flip it. Other modestly budgeted films are based more loosely on true stories. The comedy Dumb Money, about what happened when a guy with a Reddit page called Wall Street Bets went up against some big hedge funds. What up, everybody? Roaring Kitty here. I'm going to pick a stock and talk about why I think it's interesting, and that stock is GameStop. I love this guy. The hedge funds were betting that GameStop shares would fall in value. Dumb money, man. Happy to take it. But when the Reddit page kept plugging it, small investors kept buying. How much did we make today? Five million. And the hedge funds got squeezed. How much did we lose today? A billion. Do you have a minute? I, uh... Um, There's also Radical, the inspiring true story of a Mexican elementary school teacher. And a raft of inspiring documentaries about artists, from Joan Baez in I Am a Noise to Carlos Santana in Carlos. They said, hey, we want to take you to this place. It's called the Fillmore. Nothing better. Also, Lift, about a dancer from an unorthodox background. I came out of this shelter here because I joined ballet. I've come back to continue that program. And Invisible Beauty, about pioneering black model Beth Ann Hardison. Whether people know or not, she has changed the way beauty is defined. But maybe with strikes turning fall TV into a reality show dumping ground, you prefer escapism at the Cineplex? How about a third installment of My Big Fat Greek Wedding, where the whole family heads for Greece? Who wants souvlaki? Paging souvlaki. Anybody by the name of souvlaki on this flight? Another road comedy, Quiz Lady, centers on a game show-obsessed Aquafina who's trying to pay off her mom's gambling debts, and an Irish mother tries to connect with her teenager through music. Was that yours? How did you make that? It sounded epic. In Flora and Son. Let's get in trouble. Shaking off Sturdy James Bond from Dublin. We got some 
While we're talking families, Hollywood's got smaller kids covered. There's Disney's animated Wish. I wish. But a land where wishes come true. What was that? Though not always in the way you expect, the Paw Patrol critters are back in Mighty Movie, this time with superpowers. Great! Now the clumsy pup shoots fireballs out of his paw. And in Trolls Band Together, trolls will get their old band back together. We're out of sync. We've gone from boys to men, and now there's only one direction for us to go. The Backstreets. Films that are definitely not for kids include the horror comedy Dream Scenario, in which Nicolas Cage discovers he's haunting the dreams of millions, and a musical just keeps rolling in. that I hesitate to bring up because I'm not sure I'm allowed to say the title. It stars Megan The Stallion, Megan Mullally, and Nathan Lane, and has subject matter and lyrics that are, let's say, blue. And I'll just fade away here. Should I open another bottle? I know it's our second, but we're not Baptists. Decidedly adult, fair, it's called The Musical. Guess you'll have to look that one up. Now let's shift gears to drama, which takes many forms this fall, science fiction in faux. We're going to ensure Hen has company while you're away. About a husband offered a way off our dying planet. We're going to replace you. The year in faux is 2065. I don't want a robot living with my wife. Then there's Aristotle and Dante discover the secrets of the universe with Latino teens puzzling out relationships. Are there gonna be rules for us? Yes, so. If you can't stick by me, it would kill me. In All Dirt Road's Taste of Salt, there's a poetic lilt to a decade-spanning portrait of black Southern life, which contrasts with the business-like chill of the murder mystery Anatomy of a Fall, which won the top prize at Cannes by putting marriage on trial. You had a fight the day before he died. You need to start seeing yourself the way others are going to perceive you. Another mystery, A Haunting in Venice, finds Kenneth Branagh's Hercule Poirot. I do not believe in psychics. Matching wits with Tina Fey. Come with me to a seance. Spot the car and I can't. And Michelle Yeoh. Detective, you are here to discredit me. But I can talk to the dead. And just four days ago, Taylor Swift announced that a film of her sold-out stadium concert would open in October, and in 24 hours racked up $37 million in movie ticket sales. People would come up to me and they'd be like, you're gonna just like do a show with like all the albums in it? And I was like, yeah, it's, it's, it's gonna be called the Eras Tour. All of which adds up to a more robust lineup than you might expect for a strike-dampened fall. No sign of bottom-of-the-barrel scraping yet. I'm Bob Mandela. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In coastal Alabama, a small group of seniors is taking issue with a power company's plans to seal off a toxic coal waste site along the banks of the Mobile River. Corey Young with Alabama Public Radio has the story behind their late-in-life ambitions to protect the environment. As morning commuters whiz by and a flock of brown pelicans soars overhead, Frankie Boatman casts his fishing line into Mobile Bay. The retiree spends much of his time out and about these waters. I fished around Alabama Power up in the uh, canal that goes to the power plant. He's talking about Plant Berry. That's where Alabama Power has an unlined coal ash pit that opened in 1965. Coal ash is what's left after coal is burned. I've never heard of a coal, I mean a, a what is it, ash pond? No, never heard of it. That lack of awareness has 80-year-old Sally Smith fired up. Despite her age and a recent cancer diagnosis, 
Smith co-founded the Coal Ash Action Group, a grassroots environmental effort. We want that coal ash moved. We are educating people so people know how big the issue is. Coal ash contains heavy metals like mercury, arsenic, and lead. Plant Berry's massive coal ash pond borders an ecologically diverse tangle of rivers and streams that feed Mobile Bay. The company has a state permit to cap the ash pond in place. That worries 75-year-old Diane Thomas, another senior in the group. This pond contains 21 million tons of toxic sludge, covers an area of about 451 football fields. The only thing holding it back from the bank of the river is a dirt dike. Their biggest concern is that keeping the ash next to the river puts the bay one hurricane away from an environmental catastrophe. These women will talk to anyone who wants to listen, from church groups to this book club. If not many people come yet and not many people show up at the hearing, I would say it looks like that this part of Alabama really doesn't care very much. But the group also spreads its message online. That's the job of 79-year-old Savan Wilson. We also now have an Instagram, and we even have a thread account because they're tied together. These seniors hope their work will persuade Alabama Power to follow the lead of companies in Virginia, North Carolina, and South Carolina, where they're moving coal ash to lined landfills. Even Alabama Power's sister company, Georgia Power, is moving some, but not all, of its ash. Smith is actually a longtime shareholder of Southern Company, which owns Alabama Power. I want Alabama Power to do right and do right now. Smith convinced fellow shareholder and retired environmental attorney Ron Allen to join the fight. He's 80. To me, there's no doubt that the right legal move is to take the ash out. There's no question about that under EPA regulations. In an email, Alabama Power declined to comment, citing potential legal matters. The seniors' coal ash action group might get a lift from the Environmental Protection Agency. In August, the EPA proposed denying Alabama's plan for handling coal ash, saying it fails to meet federal guidelines. The agency will hold public hearings later this month. For NPR News, I'm Corey Young in Mobile. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Red Sox have come from behind thanks to rookie Tristan Cassis, who hit a three-run home run in the top of the sixth. It is now Sox over Tampa 4-3 in the top of the sixth. Listen to WBUR anywhere you venture, download, or update the WBUR app now and tap to listen live. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New Art Center in Newton. Arts education for adults, teens, and kids. Enroll now to spark your creativity this fall at newartcenter.org. In the forecast, more sunshine coming up. Overnight tonight should be mostly clear skies, some fair weather clouds around. Should still be able to see the waning moon up there, temperatures in the mid-60s. And then we should have over, uh, tomorrow that is partly to mostly sunny skies. Tomorrow and Wednesday could hang out in the mid-80s both days. Maybe more sunshine and even higher temperatures coming up later in the week. This is 90.9 WBUR, 82 degrees under bright skies in Boston at 549.
For Palestinian Americans, visiting their homeland often meant strict security checks and a roundabout journey through Jordan. <laughs> it's a nightmare. But decades of travel restrictions have come to an end for Palestinian Americans. And in exchange, Israelis may get to travel to the U.S. without a visa. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. Maybe it's the warm weather. Maybe it's the world-famous beaches with mountains on the horizon in both cities. Well, whatever the reason, musician Jose says nothing makes him feel more like a native son of Rio de Janeiro than working in Los Angeles. Yes, it's a little cliche, but when we are out from Brazil, we can look to, to our culture with in a big picture, you know? I think I'm feel more Brazilian here. Quando o vento sopra na mata e barreia sangue dança. He moved to L.A. a few years ago after releasing eight albums in Brazil. And while he was recording in L.A. with some hip-hop artists, the man who was born, Jose José Curi, found a new identity. And the guys ask my name. What's your name? My name is Jose. And the guys, what's your last name? My last name is Curi. And the guy said, oh, Curi Man. Curi Man became the title of Jose's new album, his first produced and recorded in the U.S., It's Brazilian samba, influenced by American funk. He worked closely with producer Tommy Brennick, who's collaborated with Beyonce, Lady Gaga, Amy Winehouse, and more. Tommy bring other angle, other vision for the music. And that's what I'm always looking for. I'm not just a guy to love music and just love my culture, Brazilian culture. And I really want to mix it with that culture here. I did look up the English translation of these lyrics, and, and the first song, Pra Vida, has a lyric that translates to, it doesn't matter if a door is closed, there's always an opened window. Yeah. And I wondered if that describes your experience going from making music in Brazil to the United States. Uh, my brother, when I arrived here, was very tough. That song talk about we have to always go forward because we have to believe in the life, you know. Mm-hmm. Because I was living that that experience here when I arrived here, I didn't have nothing. So why did you do it? I do it because in Brazil we have a big crisis over there. Economic crisis, political crisis, social crisis, uh, security crisis. Everything, everything was bad after, after the Olympic Games. And I used to come here to L.A. to record and I look around and say, oh, L.A. is the only only place in the world that I can change with, with Rio because L.A. has everything, you know. It has a, a chance to develop my career. So I thought to myself, oh, this is going to be a big challenge, but maybe that's that's the... the you have to hear the, your voice inside. Everybody has the voice inside. Yeah. I have the song for that in this album too, Existe Uma Voz. Existe Uma Voz. I was just going to ask about that song. Yeah, tell us about this. Everybody has a voice inside. You have to hear this voice. You know, if you are quiet and pay attention, you, everybody, you have a chance to understand what's the good direction to go. 
because always life testing you. To take a step back from the conversation about your life and your move and talk a little bit more about the music, mm-hmm. I was curious about the difference between samba and samba funk. Can you talk about what is happening rhythmically when you are doing a traditional samba and when you're doing samba funk? Yeah, this is a good example, you know, because when I make this song, I think the guys play funk, like funk, like James Brown funk, you know? We use the 16s. You you have this one in samba too. Yeah. We have this in. We have the, when you use the 16. It's the same in the samba. It seria But the guys play Dos tambores de Ashanti Eu canto arrebatador Ah, the other one is Eu gosto dela Eu gosto dela Eu fico afim So tell us what we're hearing in this one This is it's more the, 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 the half samba and half funky too because it's, the samba is it's half samba. But the guitar is sometimes play double. The, we mix it with the double time and half time. It's a kind of mix too with Brazilian, very Brazilian. And I think sounds universal. People will obviously listen to this album in different contexts, but I understand that the context of your live performances is very specific. Can you paint a picture for us of when you are in a room doing a show, what's happening? For me, is like a spiritual thing. The stage, you know, the, the room, and because you have the energy with the people with you. For me, the crowd makes the show. You describe making music as a spiritual experience, and there are a couple songs on this album that talk explicitly about spirituality. Can you tell us about one of them? Yes, I can tell about Yemanja. Yemanja is a god of creation. Yemanja is a god of the ocean. So in Brazil we have uh, we have a uh, Afro religion we call Candomblé. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful ritual, and we have a uh, like a, a orisha. Orishas are like a scent yeah. for every power of the nature. Do you feel like you're channeling this energy when you perform these songs, or are you singing about someone else's traditions? No, no, I really feel that. I really feel yeah. this from me. I'm always trying to open for that energy, so these energies protect me and guide me. You know, 
and I has I have a lot of respect for that because that's is making me strong. I never alone. Never. Hmm. That's Jose spelled R O G E. His new album is Kuriman. Thank you so much. Thank you so much Ari for space for your attention, you know. Thank you so much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From Focus Features with My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3, the Portakalos family is headed to Greece. From director Nia Vardalos and featuring the original cast, only in theaters September 8th. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this Labor Day evening. In traffic, lots going on, maybe in the usual spots. Coming off the Sagamore Bridge on the Cape, there's about a three and a half mile backup. You're pretty much clear after that. We've got long backups of about eight to nine miles along Route 95 coming south from the Hampton Tolls to the Massachusetts border. In the forecast, generally sunny and dry this evening, so nice for the holiday. Tonight, partly cloudy skies in the mid-60s. Tomorrow should start up with fog, then a good share of sunshine. Some fair-weather clouds around, temperatures in the mid-80s again. It's 5.59. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I meant what I said when I said I'm going to be the pro, most pro-union president in American history, and I make no apologies for it. Coming up on this Labor Day, how are workers doing under the Biden administration? Today is Monday, Labor Day, September 4th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, what's next for the deal that would guarantee the safe passage of grain from Ukraine after Russia's president and Turkey's president failed to revive a deal backed by the U.N.? Google's 25th anniversary and how the company's past and present challenges bode for its future. And we hear from a woman who is struggling with depression and found herself considering taking her life while she was standing on a high bridge. She'll talk about a comment from a stranger who helped her change her mind. It's 6.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Vice President Kamala Harris travels to Indonesia this week. She's slated to take part in two summits with a group of Asian countries and hold talks with leaders from the Indo-Pacific. NPR's Deepa Chevron reports the vice president's visit comes amid strained relations between the U.S. and China. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre says Harris will likely discuss recent territorial disputes in the South China Sea during her visit to Jakarta. Throughout her 
meetings in Jakarta, a couple of things. She will reaffirm our support for the freedom of the seas, peaceful resolution of disputes and adherence of international law, including freedom of navigation. The White House says Harris will discuss various other initiatives during her visit, including efforts to combat the climate crisis and improve infrastructure. This visit to Indonesia will be the third trip she's taken to the Southeast Asia region in the past two years. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. Nearly a week after Hurricane Idalia slammed into the northern Gulf Coast of Florida, damage assessments continue. The storm left a path of destruction across the region after coming ashore as a powerful Category 3 hurricane. Stephanie Colombini with member station WUSF spoke to one business owner north of Tampa who's working to repair the damage. Idalia flooded the building where Catherine Beerant runs her wholesale seafood business with about three feet of water. She and her staff banded together to clear the debris. All the walls have to be gutted. We've got electrical problems, panels that are going to cost $6,000 to replace. Buren's anxious to finish repairs in time for stone crab season next month. She says it's a big part of her business. It's hard to sleep at night right now when you know you've got this big a job ahead of you. It's a lot of stress. It's a lot of money. Small business owners in 25 counties affected by the storm can apply for aid through a state emergency loan program. For NPR News, I'm Stephanie Columbini in Tampa. The United Auto Workers Union and Detroit's big three car makers are facing a mid-month deadline to reach agreements on new contracts. NPR's Don Gagne reports. The UAW began contract talks with General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis in mid-July. Union President Sean Fain has insisted that the $250 billion in profits the automakers have earned over the past decade means workers deserve significant raises and and job protections to make up for past concessions. The UAW also wants workers building electric car batteries to be able to join the union and receive a fair wage. Don Gagne, NPR News, Detroit. For tens of thousands of Burning Man participants at the impromptu gathering site known as Black Rock City, it has been a soggy few days. Only now are things starting to dry out. Flash flooding turned into the annual festival in the northwestern Nevada desert into a muddy morass. People began leaving this afternoon. The organizers are urging anyone who can wait until tomorrow to leave. As many as 70,000 people attend the annual event. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. The city of Boston and its firefighters union have reached a tentative agreement on a new contract. Mayor Michelle Wu says details of the pact will be shared after it's ratified by union members. The agreement comes after months of negotiations between the two sides. During that time, firefighters picketed and sued the city over the mayor's COVID-19 vaccine mandates. The mandates were dropped earlier this year. Hundreds of unionized workers in industries ranging from construction to education marched from the Boston Park Plaza Hotel to downtown Crossing today. The rally was in support of the writers' strike in solidarity with a sag after union that represents writers and actors. WBR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez has more. For weeks, SAG-AFTRA members have been on strike while negotiating a new agreement to increase wages. It would also address concerns over the use of artificial intelligence in the entertainment industry. The Greater Boston Labor Council helped organize the rally. Darlene Lombos is with the Labor Council and says it's important for unions to support each other. Solidarity is what the labor movement is all about. We are about sharing that power that we're building with workers with each other. So for us, an injury to one is an injury to all. Lombos says the Labor Council will support the sag after strike until an agreement has been reached. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. 
Two people are recovering from injuries after an overnight shooting at a Mattapan nightclub. The Boston Police Department says officers responded to the Macumba Latina shortly before 1 a.m. The two people shot went to the hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. A suspect is in custody, but police have not released that person's identity. Authorities in New York have seized an ancient Roman bust from the Worcester Art Museum that was likely stolen and illegally imported to the U.S. in 1966. Here's WBUR Simone Rios. The bust is believed to depict the daughter of an emperor who ruled more than 2,000 years ago. The Worcester Art Museum said in a statement that it returned the bronze bust to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Museum officials say they were presented with evidence earlier this year, which indicated that the bust was likely stolen and improperly brought into the country. Museum director Matthias Waszczek said in a statement that the museum is committed to managing its collection in a way consistent with modern ethical standards. The bust likely came from a shrine to a Roman emperor in what is now Turkey and is expected to be returned to its country of origin. The Manhattan DA's office has returned tens of millions of dollars in stolen artifacts to Turkey in recent years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simon Rios. A nonprofit organization is transforming vacant spaces and empty lots in Boston into temporary art space. Kate Gilbert is executive director of Now and There. It invites local and international artists to develop free public art throughout the city. We started this organization um, because we thought there was a need for more visual contemporary art in the public realm. And part of the reason that we're doing temporary projects is so that we can put like as many out as possible. Gilbert says some of the work includes Puerto Rican-born artist Adra Soto and her first-ever Boston artwork at Central Wharf Park near the New England Aquarium. It is now in St. Petersburg, Florida, in the seventh inning, top of the seventh inning. Red Sox are holding on to a 4-3 lead over Tampa Bay. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight, temperatures in the mid-60s. Then tomorrow, about as warm as today has been 87 degrees tops with both clouds and sunshine. Down to 79 degrees now in Boston at 608. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. A deal fell apart today that could have helped feed hungry people around the world. Russian President Vladimir Putin met with Turkey's leader, who wanted to revive a UN-backed agreement to move grain safely from Ukraine through the Black Sea. Putin left the deal in July, and today he rejected the effort to restart it. NPR's Charles Maines has been watching the talks from his base in Moscow. Hey there. Hi there. Begin by just setting the scene for us. Where did this meeting take place? What was the setting? Yeah, sure. These talks took place in the Russian resort city of Sochi, uh, which lies in the Black Sea, uh, as do the main players in this story, Russia, Turkey, and Ukraine. Uh, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan came hoping to coax President Putin back into the UN deal uh, that was first brokered by Turkey and the UN uh, and to provide safe passage uh, for Ukrainian grain despite the war in Ukraine. Now, going in, Erdogan and his team expressed cautious optimism, and yet it quickly became clear that whatever positive aspects of this relationship between the two leaders and Putin and Erdogan appear to have to get along quite well despite Turkey being a member of NATO, uh, it just wasn't enough to convince Putin to rejoin the deal. Did Putin explain why, what his argument was? Well, at a press conference following the talks, Putin recycled a litany of complaints that the agreement helped Ukraine export its grain, uh, but repeatedly failed to ease Russian agricultural trade. Let's listen. 
So here Putin says, as often happens with our Western partners, they cheated us. And then he goes on to say Russia is open to restarting the grain agreement, but only once uh, promises to lift Western-imposed restrictions on banking and logistics and things like that have finally been lifted. Now, Putin clearly sees these as Western sanctions on Russian agriculture simply by another name. Uh, now, Putin also repeated another Russian talking point. He argues the Black Sea deal mostly aids wealthier countries and touted Russia's own efforts to direct its bumper crop to the world's poorest. Uh, that's a pitch by Putin for Russia to provide discounted grain and fertilizer to the global south and direct humanitarian aid shipments uh, to six African nations, most of whom are Russian allies. How do Turkey and the UN respond to those charges from Russia? Well, Erdogan seems very eager not to end discussions altogether. You know, he expressed optimism that Russia would eventually rejoin the deal, uh, which has Turkish prestige on the line after all. Uh, he also offered some vocal support to helping Russia deliver those grain shipments to its allies in Africa. Uh, but if there's any friction that we could see, uh, it seemed to hinge on the point that kind of we raised, that Erdogan said the UN deal had benefited poor countries. Uh, the UN makes the same case with numbers. Uh, 33 million metric tons of Ukrainian grain exported through the deal have helped keep prices down, they say, and feed the world's hungry. And the UN said it's directed these concrete proposals to assuage Moscow's concerns, but, but apparently that's uh, fallen short in the Kremlin's eyes. And what about Ukraine? What are the Ukrainians saying about this? Well, you know, amid the collapse of the grain deal, Moscow has taken to bombing Ukraine's grain facilities, its infrastructure, in what appears an effort to gut the Ukrainian agricultural economy entirely. Uh, Russia has also threatened to fire on commercial ships attempting to circumvent a Russian blockade, calling them legitimate military targets. In fact, Russia launched military strikes on grain stores near ports in the Odessa region on Sunday, just a day before Erdogan's arrival to Sochi. So it's a sign, if he, if he needed one, uh, that efforts to resuscitate this grain deal were in trouble uh, before these talks ever began. That's NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Thank you. Thank you. On this Labor Day, we're going to, to examine a promise from the president. I meant what I said when I said I'm going to be the pro, most pro-union president in American history, and I make no apologies for it. So how has the Biden administration been for workers? NPR's Andrea Hsu takes a look. Let's start with workers themselves, people like Laura Leguizamo, who works in housekeeping at the JW Marriott in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, everything is expensive. Um, I have to move from my home because they sell the property and uh, I can't find any place, you know, cheaper. Her union has been staging strikes and rallies and demanding an immediate 20% raise in their next contract and more in years to come. Lady Zamo says she simply can't afford to live on her salary, which is... Uh, 25 an hour. $25 an hour, well above LA's minimum wage of $16.90 an hour, but still not enough. All the payments and bills and rent and that food is very expensive. Now, workers in L.A. have it particularly bad given soaring housing prices. But all over the country, workers are finding that even though their wages have gone up a lot since Biden came into office. Pay for low-wage workers has grown at the fastest pace in over two decades. Inflation has been tough, really tough. Wage gains only started outpacing inflation in July. Now, Acting Labor Secretary Julie Su notes how steeply inflation has fallen. It's like a third of what it was uh, just a year ago. And she points out this has happened without a spike in unemployment or a decline in wages. So things should be looking up, even if people aren't feeling it yet. 
But what about new jobs? Well, job creation has been strong under Biden. And Sue says, look at all the new opportunities in clean energy and manufacturing that are projected to come online thanks to federal investments in infrastructure and semiconductors, the CHIPS Act. Two trillion dollars are going to start hitting communities all across the country and creating more good jobs, good union jobs. Sounds good, but there are doubters. People like Scott Lincecum, a free market economist with the Cato Institute, who's warned the spending could prove wasteful. He spoke to NPR last fall. Time and time again with U.S. industrial policy projects, the government has good intentions, but ends up actually backing the wrong horse. Others are more optimistic about the administration's choices and what they'll do for workers. Lorena Roque, a policy analyst with the Center for Law and Social Policy, gives the administration credit for trying to reach workers who have been shut out of opportunities in the past, including, for example, requiring companies who want CHIPS money to provide access to affordable childcare. I think the key with a lot of the Biden administration's job creation is also making sure that there are equitable pathways and equitable access for women and people of color. Of course, there's still a long way to go to make that a reality. Biden's $200 billion proposal to make childcare affordable, even free for Americans, didn't go anywhere. And now COVID emergency money for daycares is running out. Now, one thing the Biden administration has done is raise the visibility of workers. The president appears alongside union members all the time. Electricians, carpenters, iron workers, steel workers, laborers, bricklayers, plumbers, pipe fitters, police officers, firefighters. And America's support for unions is close to a 60-year high. But whether the administration can parlay that support into real growth in union membership is still a big question. One big disappointment for unions, the administration has not been able to get a bill passed that would make it easier for workers to organize and harder for companies to push back. Without that, many parts of Biden's agenda for workers remain on hold. Andrea Hsu, NPR News. Time now for my unsung hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain, hearing about people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today we hear from Trieste Belmont. In 2014, she was struggling with depression. Her grandmother had just died, and she and her longtime boyfriend had just broken up. Life felt unbearable. Around that time, Belmont was teaching a dance class. She didn't have a driver's license, so friends and family would give her rides. One day her ride didn't show up. And a note for listeners that the next part of the story is about suicide. I waited for about an hour and they never came. So I decided to just walk home. It wasn't super far, but longer than I wanted to walk. I was just having one of the worst days of my life. On the way home, I crossed over the 49 bridge and it's a pretty high bridge. And I was looking down at all the cars, just feeling so useless and like such a burden to everyone in my life that I decided that this was the time and I needed to end my life. I was sobbing and crying and working up the courage to just go through with it because I knew at that moment that it was going to make everyone's lives better. And a car came driving up from behind and they shouted, don't jump, right as I was 
in one of my darkest moments. And those words just changed everything for me. Having a stranger care about me in my darkest time made it so that I didn't jump and it saved my life. Something that I realized is that even if something's not a huge moment in your life, just the little small gestures that you can make for other people really do make a difference. Even if you see someone that has a cute outfit on, telling them might make their day. They might be super depressed and worried about the way they look, but if you come in and you give them a small little compliment, it could change everything for them. Trieste Belmont of Nevada City, California. In the past few years, Belmont says her mental health has greatly improved with the help of a therapist and her family's support. She hopes that sharing her story will inspire others struggling with depression to reach out for help. And if you or someone you love struggles with suicidal thoughts, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That number is 988. You can find more stories like this one on the My Unsung Hero podcast. To share the story of your unsung hero, visit myunsunghero.org for instructions on how to send a voice memo. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Thanks for joining us. Hope you've enjoyed your Labor Day holiday and you're not stuck in traffic. If you are coming off the Sagamore Bridge on the Cape, you are stuck in a little bit of traffic because about a two and a half mile backup, pretty much clear after that. It's gotten a little more congested coming down from New Hampshire. The backup starts about six miles before the Hampton Tolls and continues for about five miles leading to the Massachusetts border. Rookie first baseman Tristan Cassis has done it again. He hit a three-run homer to put the Red Sox in the lead down in St. Petersburg, Florida this afternoon. It is the top of the eighth now, and the Sox are holding on to a 4-3 lead over Tampa Bay. This is WBUR. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lesley University. Inspire a whole new generation of learners with an education degree from Lesley University. Get started today at lesley.edu. Looks pretty beautiful out there right now. Generally sunny into the evening hours. And then for tonight, partly cloudy skies, temperatures in the mid-60s. Tomorrow could start up with a little bit of fog and then a good share of sunshine. Some fair weather clouds in the mid-80s once again. Wednesday, bright sunshine still in the 80s. Could turn toward 90 degrees toward the end of the week. 79 in the Boston area at 621. WBUR supporters include Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. 
Today is a big anniversary for one of the most influential companies of our time. We should say that Google is, we want to provide information to people, that's what we do. And so um, we try to err on that side whenever we can. And I think this will be a very interesting issue for the world going forward. That was Google co-founder Larry Page speaking with WHYY's Fresh Air in 2003. At that point, the company was already a behemoth at just five years old. Now, as the company turns 25, let's look at where Google has been and where it's going with Nilay Patel. He's editor-in-chief of The Verge and has been reflecting on Google's legacy and its future. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Before Google had a parent company, Alphabet, before it owned YouTube, before Google it was a household phrase, what was this company's reason for existing? You know, Larry Page and Sergey Brin came up with a better algorithm for delivering search results on the internet called PageRank, named after Larry Page. And really, they turned that into a business in a very classic Silicon Valley way. They didn't know what business they were in. They just knew that their product was better than competing products. And at the very beginning of Google, they were both fairly opposed to advertising. And they knew that advertising would be a way to make money, but they thought it would corrupt the company inevitably. And here we are 25 years later, and Google is a dominant purveyor of advertising online. And it is, I think it's, it's important for us to all take a minute and look at it and say, okay, our information architecture is dominated by people searching for things. And those search results are very much influenced by the needs of Google. Not only that, you write that Google set out to organize the world's information, but ultimately what ended up happening was that information organized itself for Google. Can you give us an example of what you mean by that? Yeah, and I think this is largely true of all algorithmic media distribution platforms, and we just don't think about Google that way. If I told you that Instagram influencers tried to make things to please the Instagram recommendation algorithm, no one would bat an eye. Everyone knows this is true. YouTubers try to make videos that please the YouTube algorithm. There's a reason that every YouTube thumbnail looks crazy and has a shocking headline about what you won't believe. It's because that works in that algorithm, the way it's organized, the amount of words on a recipe website. All of that is there because people believe that the Google search algorithm will favor that stuff. And so you just look at this world that we're in online and you say, boy, there's it. There's a true invisible hand here that dominates how people organize information. If you ask Google, they will deny this up and down. They will say that Google just reflects what people are searching for. And the truth is obviously somewhere in the middle, right? People are trying to rank higher in search. They make things that the, the robot wants. And the robot is just surfacing the results that people click on the most. And there's some cycle in there. But what is truly bizarre to me is no one will point directly at Google being the center of that cycle. So you argue that Google has not just reflected the internet back to us, but really shaped the internet as it exists today. And it may look very different tomorrow. When we look at the future of the company, you argue that AI-related challenges pose an existential threat to Google. Existential threat is a strong phrase. Why? So the quote you played at the very beginning is the conflict that has been within Google from the very beginning. They are there to provide useful information. That's what Google has always thought of itself as. And initially, the way they provided it was by looking at the entire internet and sending you to pages on the internet that contained that information. Over time, Google has bought a lot of companies that now own and control that information, and they favor their own companies over competitors who might have better information or more useful services. 
they also just answer the questions directly now. There was a cottage industry of websites telling people what time the Super Bowl was. That was pretty ridiculous. But they were all competing for Google search traffic for that query on the day of the Super Bowl. Now Google just tells you the answer to that question. That's probably fine. But you add in something like AI or Google's search generative experience, which needs to ingest a massive amount of data to then just provide the answers contained in the pages that it ingested. And no one gets any traffic from that. Nobody gets any value from that. And you can see why a bunch of companies that have organized themselves around Google traffic are freaking out because they have just provided all of their work to Google for free, and they're not really going to get anything else out of it. If an AI-defined future is worse for Google, is it better for users who are just trying to find the best information without getting gamed and manipulated for clicks? I think that is one of the questions of the AI age. If no one wants to share their new information with Google, what will it train the AI on? If some set of big publishers say, look, our Google traffic is going down, we're going to stop letting Google crawl our web pages and stop feeding new information into the Google search machine, where is the AI going to get new reliable information from? It can't scrape Instagram. They can't scrape TikTok. Those companies are closed off to Google. I've asked Google CEO Sundar Pichai about this, and his answer was that they have YouTube, that YouTube exists, and people will still make YouTube videos. And I think that answer is fundamentally extremely revealing. Google knows that a new creator online is not going to start a web page the way that I started a web page when I was a young person who wanted to make things on the internet. They're going to start a TikTok channel or a YouTube channel. So if the web slowly dies because Google and AI are sucking the value out of it without creating any incentives to create new things, I don't know where that leaves any of us really. Okay, so big picture on this anniversary, 25 years in, if you could describe Google's legacy in a sentence, what would that be? Secretly ruthless. Oh, that's that's rough. Wow. Secretly ruthless. That's even less than a sentence. Give me a little bit more. Why do you say secretly ruthless? Google has convinced everyone that it is this incredibly sincere and earnest company that is just a bunch of goofballs making cool things. That is true. But I think we just paid a little more attention to where Google's money comes from, and it is almost entirely advertising. I think we would be able to see the company and its influence a little bit more clearly. But the truth is, it is an utterly ruthless advertising company that is very, very, very successful at delivering results to its clients. But Neil, you didn't mention how cute the Google Doodles are. Yeah, like I said, they're very cute. <laughs> like a lot, of, I, I, I know a lot of Google people. I know a lot of Google executives. They're on my show decoder all the time. I like talking to them. They wrestle very sincerely with very challenging trade-offs. But I do think on the occasion of its anniversary, it is remarkable that we are all more cynical or more rigorous in our analysis of Facebook. To some extent, we're more cynical in our analysis of Apple. To a huge extent, we are cynical in our analysis of TikTok. But no one applies that level of rigor to Google, which is actually the product that shapes the most information on the web. Nilay Patel is host of the Decoder podcast and editor-in-chief at The Verge, where all this year he'll be reflecting on the past and future of Google to mark the company's 25th anniversary. Thanks for marking it with us. Thank you for having me.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Partly cloudy this evening. Clear enough, though, to see the waning moon tonight. About 66 degrees for a low. Then more summer September days ahead. Tomorrow, sunshine and clouds sharing the sky. Temperatures in the mid-80s. Wednesday, sunshine dominates. Temperatures in the mid-80s once again. Red Sox bats are exploding. Sox now lead the Tampa Bay Rays 7-3 in the top of the 8th in St. Petersburg. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy, offering home assessments for energy-efficient air conditioning and heating. Learn about rebates exclusive to Massachusetts residents at GoEndlessEnergy.com. 